Vivo qualitative data analysis software empowers researchers around the world to discover rich insights within their qualitative data. This podcast gives you unique insights into the methods, the processes, and the passions of researchers. Welcome to the InVivo podcast, Between the Data. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Stacey Penna, the InVivo product and community director, and today's podcast is with Dr. Janet Salmons, community manager at Sage Method Space. So welcome, Janet. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Stacey. Great to join you. So my first question is, um, how did you get started facilitating Sage's Method Space? Method Space started back in the kind of wiki era with kind of a participant-led groups and not very much general content. So when they decided they wanted to upgrade this to a site that would be a research hub with you know, lots of uh, information about research methods, they hired someone to lead that effort. And when he started asking around at Sage, um, apparently uh, my name came up. And so he contacted me. I, I think that part of the uh, reason f- that they asked me to be involved with this is that I have a very broad background. And you know, a lot of people who come out of academic work are very focused on a specific area, whereas I, I have a, a wide range of, of interests and experience. And whenever I'd been talking with the marketing people, you know, around uh, issues with my own books, I was always uh, suggesting, you know, many kinds of ideas about, you know, how to uh, reach uh, new audiences for research. So I I think that those are some of the reasons why they uh, invited me to get involved with this. I started as a writer doing some guest posts, but things just continued to grow. And now we've moved into I think, a a much uh, more sophisticated uh, stage with method space. And and we really hope that it's valuable to researchers and people who are teaching research and and academic writers across the globe. I definitely think it is. (laughs) I enjoy it. The second edition of your book, Doing Qualitative Research Online, which was released in December 2021, so, so recently, how did you get interested in doing qualitative research online? When I was doing my own doctoral research, I was studying the topic of collaboration, online collaboration, and how do people learn the skills they need to be good collaborative partners. So there was kind of a tie-in between e-learning and collaborative skills development. And I knew that I wanted to learn about those things from people across the world that, you know, I didn't want to be limited, you know, simply to the U.S. since that's where I live, because in my professional interactions, I've heard so many different kinds of examples from other people, but it's like, well, how am I going to do that? Because I have no money to travel around the world and sit down with these people and talk with them. At the time, I'd been doing webinars. I was very early adopter for webinars and those technologies. So I thought, well, why can't I do my interviews using this technology? It's private because only the person that's logged in can access it. And you know, the other component was that I had a visual element to my research. So I needed 
an approach that would allow me to share these visuals and talk with them about the inter with the interview participants. So just doing an audio only, like say telephone, would not be adequate. So I thought, you know, this webinar technology would be perfect because we can talk. We have the audio part of it. We have the visual part of it. We have the interactive part because I used a, a shared whiteboard to kind of allow the participants to expand on the visual images that I was sharing. Um, and then you also have the text chat. So if there's something that they want to share in writing, you know, you had that um, as well. So, you know, once I had uh, completed that research and uh, started talking to people about my research, as you do when you're a doctoral student and you think everyone wants to know what you're studying, I thought that you know, the collaboration piece would be what would be of interest. But when I started talking about how I had done my interviews, they go like, stop, stop, stop. How'd you do that? Is there anything written about that? And so after like the millionth person asked me that question, I started going like, I think I need to write something about this. And so then I, when I started to write about these methods and to look at how the online approaches corresponded to and approaches that have been used, you know, for a long time, there have been lots of research using visual elicitation and, you know, some of these things, but not using these kinds of tools. Then I would say that I became kind of a, um, a researcher about research, which I guess is what a methodologist is, because I started to look at, well, you know, what are other people doing? You know, how are people using these emerging technologies? And you know, what are the assets and, and, and limitations of them? Because, you know, when I started uh, in the early 2000s with this, you know, a lot of these tools were not in widespread use. So that would mean, you know, you've got implications for the sample and the population because, you know, you're, you know, you can only uh, do research with people who have access and skills to use these tools, but certainly, you know, that that's changed as, uh, as the tools have evolved and, and become much more widely adopted. Do you need to approach your research design differently when conducting research online? I think that every part of the research design needs to be approached differently when you are conducting it online, every part of it. And I, I think that we need a kind of iterative, holistic approach to think it through, because once you make one decision, that's going to have implications for the other design decisions. So, you know, I encourage people to think through, you know, each choice and what those implications might be. So, for example, you know, I will hear from people who say, oh, well, I'm going to do my interviews uh, online using whatever, you know, video conference tool. So then I will say, well, if you're using a video conference tool, what visual data are you collecting? Will it be important for the person to be on the camera? Well, and that means the person has to have a camera and be willing to be on the camera. Are you looking at what is in the background, in the environment? Do you want to see that person's home or office environment, is that a part of the data you're collecting? If so, then you need to be able to communicate that to the person so they uh, they know 
that's what the expectation is, then that will need to be part of your consent agreement. Well, now we've got, now we're talking about your consent agreement. You've got, so, you know, each, each element makes a difference. Uh, I encourage people to think about, I mean, in terms of the types of research that involve interacting with participants, because certainly there are online methods that, that don't involve interacting with participants. But if you are thinking about those, to take a moment and reflect on the ways that you communicate online. You know, one time you might say, well, I'm going to send an email to this person, but I'm going to send a text message to that person. I'm going to have an active chat or I'm going to have a video call. Why do you make those choices? Or I'm going to post onto a social media forum or I'm going to post into a shared folder. Why do you make those choices? What's the difference between the communication that you get you know, if, from each of those, you know, how, how do those responses vary? And how would you then take that kind of thinking to make your decisions about the technology you're going to use and then think through the implications of, of those choices for the other parts of the design, the sampling and the ethical issues and as well as the methodology and the methods. So I think that it's not to say that we need to throw out everything that that we knew from before for, with qualitative research, but that we need we need to think about it a little bit differently and, and be, be very strategic about our choices. That makes sense. This podcast is sponsored by QSR International, developers of Envivo and other software solutions for leading researchers and educators. If you're looking for an accurate and fast way to transcribe your audio and video files, try using Envivo Transcription, your automated transcription assistant, with the 15-minute trial. What online data collection techniques do you recommend for researchers? Well, it's not so much that I recommend a particular one. What I recommend is that people think through, again, in this sort of a holistic systems thinking way of uh, going about research design to think through what you'd need to to answer your research questions or address your research problem. So, you know, I categorize the approaches in three ways. So the first is extant data. So that would be any data that was created, materials, resources that were created. They didn't have you in mind. They don't care about you. They have their own purpose. And you are going to, you know, access those, download, read, whatever. It could be published uh, documents, historical documents that are in archives, or it could be real-time social media posts, whatever. They, they weren't created to answer your question, but they might answer your question, or it might help you to understand your problem a little bit more by, by getting, you know, broader context. So that's one level extant. So here, it's not to say that you won't ever need to have informed consent. You may need permissions to access particular kinds of archives. And so it's, it's not a matter of saying, well, you don't need any agreement, but it will be different from the kinds of agreements you will need with human participants who are answering your questions. So once you pose a question on Twitter to, well, hmm, what do you think about this? You have now you have now crossed over into the next category, which is elicitation. So this, I would put anything where you're asking questions 
or prompting responses and someone is answering them. So that could include interviews, focus groups, group interviews, or participant observation, and those kinds of methods or, or questionnaires where you're asking questions to someone and they're answering your questions. So there are all kinds of ways that that we can do that. But then, especially in looking at the kinds of research that people do online, I realized that there is yet another level. And so I call that enacted. And, you know, partly because I just wanted three parallel names, but, you know, some people might call it performative. So here is where, you know, it's not only a matter of you have a participant, but you have this person may be a co-researcher. They may be a collaborative partner. This is the type of research that may have multiple interactions, not just one single interview. So, you know, this would include action research, more experiential methods, simulations, field experiments, creative arts-based methods, and, and those kinds of approaches that, that re require a greater commitment on the part of the participant over a period of time, not just in one interaction, and that allow you to explore the research problem um, in a little bit different way than you might by simply asking someone questions where they have to recall hmm, when did I have that experience? How did I feel? And what do I really want to tell this researcher about that? Like maybe I, you know, maybe I don't want to tell her about that, you know, other part that the experience that, you know, hmm, I want to like think I'll keep that to myself. So, you know, you, you can create an environment where, you know, there might be, you know, more of a free flow and you have the opportunity to develop trust over a period of time. But there's no one size fits all. It's not that one approach is better than another. It's just, you know, what what fits your research and your ability to conduct it in terms of the time that you have and the access you have to participants, et cetera. Thank you. What technology helps researchers conduct online research? Well, I think, you know, pretty much any kind of, I mean, in terms of, of say, communicating with participants, any way that you can communicate with somebody, you could use that for research. So, you know, if, whether it's um, synchronous, asynchronous, what I call near synchronous, where, you know, you're posting perhaps a, a prompt to someone's text messaging, you know, think about this today and get back to me, um, you know, or it could be an, an app, you know, pretty much any, any kind of tool can be used for research. The thing that I think is a limitation is that you need to look at, you know, some kinds of commercial platforms where you don't have the ability to protect the data. So in some kinds of social media platforms, for example, if you are collecting data there, you can't promise to your ethics review or IRB board that you can protect that data because someone else owns it. So, you know, there are some technology issues around having the ability to to delete your recording, say, on the cloud and put it on your own hard drive where you can protect it. So there, there are some, you know, constraints there. With the constraints, do you find in some ways conducting the research online, it almost makes it a little easier to collect the data because it's already in a digital form. Now, some of these programs have transcription and you right. get the video and audio right downloaded <laughs> right. just in general. Do you, do you find it right. almost easier sometimes? I think for some, it, it is easier. I mean, 
you know, there's certainly written forms, whether it's a questionnaire or a series of uh, email interviews or text chat. If it's in if it's in writing, then you don't need to transcribe it. And as you say, you know, increasingly, partly because of disability access, a lot of the platforms now have automatic transcription built into them, which is a real boon. Or there are other, you know, standalone transcription tools you can use to, you know, kind of translate your audio into written words. But then when you have the data, whether it is a video interview or whether it is, it could be early days film records that are in an archive or video records. There's so much material that, you know, is being digitized and and put into libraries and archives, the real, you know, phenomenal opportunities for researchers to to access that material. And then, you know, in terms of of the, you know, kind of getting into the the analysis part of it, tools like Envivo that allow you to, in other words, to simply transcribe the audio, then like, well, what about the visual data? So then going back again, you know, to the question I gave as an example before, if I'm doing a video interview, do I want to be looking at the books on the bookshelf, you know, the other family members, what the home looks like, you know, what the office looks like, you know, the pictures on the desk, you know, are those part of what I'm trying to include when I'm trying to understand where this person is coming from, then I'm not going to get any of that in a pure transcription. So then I want the kind of tool that will allow me to make notes or code directly from that media. And let's face it, you know, as the the world, you know, our, our uh, multi-modal ways of communication means that, you know, we, we really need to be able to do that because that's the way people communicate visually in images because we've got a camera with us every, at every moment. I mean, you read the early accounts of these you know, researchers going into the field carrying these giant heavy equipment and we've got it, you know, it's with us all, at, all, at all times. So, you know, that's how people communicate. So as researchers, you know, we need to say, well, you know, what data are, am I collecting, you know, in this visual material and how am I going to include that? You know, how am I going to take that richness and translate it into the stories that I'm trying to tell with my research? How do you analyze your own data? You know, certainly we're in the in vivo. I love using the in vivo tools and, you know, as we just described, being able to use the video and make notes and, and code, you know, directly that way, you know, as well as, you know, the ability to kind of put all of your data into one place. I think that, you know, whether you are a student or an experienced researcher, part of the challenge is just keeping track of all of the stuff. You know, it's just like managing all of the materials is, you know, a big part of it. So, being able to to have everything in one place, I think, is, is really useful. What are the ethical considerations you have to consider when conducting research online? This is an area where, you know, there are no easy answers. That's why in my in my new the new edition of my book, there are three chapters that have to do with ethics. There is a lot to think through. In the biggest sense, 
I ask people to think about the integrity of the role of the researcher, because there are a lot of things you're doing where, you know, nobody's looking. You know, there's some things where people are looking and you've got to submit paperwork, but there are a lot of areas where it's you and the participant, or it's you and the data, and what are your own values about honesty and especially when the answers you're getting are not the answers you were hoping to get. The things you're finding out are not, you know, what you expected. Are you going to be true to the data? So, you know, I think at the largest sense, you know, those issues are perhaps even more prominent online because you might, might be just you and the computer. So, what kind of researcher are you? You know, I wrote another book about that. But then, you know, in terms of, I mean, each technology has its own issues and dilemmas and each kind of data, you know, so I, I think, you know, it really is a matter of, of trying to consider what the options are and what makes sense for your own research. You know, people have been trying, since I've been working in this field, researchers, you know, kind of the research community broadly has been trying to think like, well, you know, how can we have some guidelines that make sense for this? And we certainly, we have the Association of of Internet Researchers guidelines that are very helpful, but even those will point you back to, you need to look at your own study and try to, to make the best decision that you can and look to others who are experienced and try to Talk with other researchers, you know, try to get some feedback, you know, about what the approaches that you want to take. But I would say that I probably err more on the side of saying if you're in doubt about something like informed consent, then you probably need to get some form of consent to go forward. I am not in the camp that thinks that, you know, hey, if it's online, it's fair game, just go for it. I, I don't buy into that school of thought. You know, we want to err on the side as a research community. We want to err on the side of, of having really thought through what we're doing and, and looking for the, the best way to, to go about it. Some of the kinds of uh, problems that have emerged, whether they were in academic research or in social political situations that have come through, I think have jeopardized all of us, you know, by creating a situation of, of public distrust. So, you know, we want to be the, the cheerleaders for building trust so that when someone asks a potential participant to be a part of a study, they will say, yes, you know, I want to help contribute new knowledge and new understandings of these issues, you know, rather than going like, mm, I don't think so, because I've heard about what you guys do. Working with institutional review boards, IRBs, has that changed with this, especially with everyone, you know, with the pandemic now where probably more people are doing research online? I think there's still a lot of work to be done in that area. I've seen some real problematic research, what to me would be problematic research approved because the IRB members or the ethics review board members just not familiar enough with online research to so say things get approved that I would think like, oh, no, I would never approve that. And then other things where they're like, Mm-mm, no, you're not doing that. And I'm thinking like, what do you, why? You know, that's, that looks perfectly fine because they're just not familiar enough, you know, with the online research to, to know. In my books, I, I really try to help people not only think through 
what kinds of ethical dilemmas are present in their research, how to approach them, but also how to explain them to people who might not be familiar with online research so that, you know, you can get the best uh, response. But, you know, in some ways, I would say, you know, even if an IRB or ethics review board approves something, that doesn't necessarily mean to say, oh, well, okay, all done here, you know, nothing more to do, partly because generally those kinds of reviews are at the beginning of the research process. And, you know, there are many things that come up while the research is underway. I mean, unless it's a a dramatic change in your design where you need to go back to IRB, you know, really, you know, they're not going to be that helpful. I think that, you know, certainly things have changed partly because of the pandemic. I don't think that any review board is going to approve in-person, on-site research for pretty much anything right now, you know, maybe next year. I don't think right now. So I think that there, you know, there's a lot of angst in that area. So, you know, I say, you know, on the side of, you know, for the researcher, really try to reflect on what it is you're doing, figure out what the dilemmas are, look at the literature, how have other people handled those dilemmas, because one of the benefits right now is that there is more research published that has come from online data collection. So you can see, you know, what others have done. Send the researcher an email because I can tell you that any researcher, if someone writes to them and say, hey, I read your article and that was really interesting and I have a question, they will be delighted. Ask, you know, take the time to really uh, think it through and don't depend solely on a review board to give you the advice because they they just might not be uh, kind of specialized in this area to give the adequate and full response. We'll take a quick break from the episode. To find Dr. Janet Salmon's book, Doing Qualitative Research Online, visit Sage Publishing's website. So what's the future of using online methods? I certainly think that, you know, one of the things that's come out of this time uh, is that, you know, people realize that there are a lot of things that you can do online. And, you know, part of it is that the tools are more widely available Everything has a webcam attached to it. More material is being digitized and made available through libraries and archives and public sites of various kinds. So I think that there's a realization that there is a lot of there's a lot of things we can do with research online, but not everything. I mean, so what I would anticipate, you know, once things kind of open up is that people might say, well, I'm going to take a hybrid approach, you know, where maybe I'm going to do part of the study using online data collection, but maybe I want to do some observations in person, or maybe I want to do some interviews in person, or I want to do some arts-based or creative experience in person, but I can still do other parts of the study online so that it's more convenient to the participants and some of the advantages that we've mentioned, the ability to record. I mean, for example, I mean, while it's wonderful to be in the physical presence of other people, and I don't discount that, you know, if you're doing an interview on a video conferencing platform where you can record the whole thing, you've got, you know, here are the the visuals and diagrams, photographs, artifacts that you're discussing, and you've got the videos so you can see, you know, the response a person's making, their facial expressions and nonverbals. 
You've got, you know, text chat where you could say, you know, what was the name of that place again? And it's all recorded in one place. That is, you know, a tremendous value to researchers that is not as easy to accomplish in a live environment. So I think, you know, the, you know, once things open up and people can make the choice to do things in person, I, I anticipate that there'll be more kind of combination approaches. So I think online research is here to stay. The other advantage that we haven't mentioned is that, you know, as I said with with my study, you can interview people all over the world. You can engage with participants. Geography is not a limitation. So, you know, that really opens up the possibility to have, you know, more culturally diverse research that I think, you know, we really need right now. And also, you know, people who are in more protected environments where, you know, it's difficult to go in, where there is a real researcher effect. You know, if you showed up as an outsider, you know, into this community, everyone will notice you because you're going to stand out. You know, you know like it's obvious you're not one of them. So, you know, there, I think there are, there are advantages that we can, you know, still use even when we have the, the ability to, to be in person. Yeah, I agree. I went to a webinar with actually market researchers and talking mm-hmm. about how they do mm-hmm. their research online now. And they thought it would probably stay because A, like you said, they can reach more people and B, it's more cost effective, right? So instead right. of like renting out a special focus group room and, you right. know, all that, they can, you know, now Zoom and they have it on video and it's still a focus group that works. And so I thought that right. was interesting. So, and this was right. like a year ago and they said, yeah, I think this is going to stay because it works. I think on the technology side, the other thing that, that I hope will happen is that there will be more tools made available, you know, for that, whether it's uh, designed intentionally as a research tool or that can be adapted as a research tool that is more private. So I'm looking at, say, some of the kinds of uh, platforms that where I participate in online classes and online kind of community types of things where, you know, it's not a, it's not a social media platform run by a company where it's not in their interest to let you erase the uh, interaction or download it and that you can protect the data. They want the data. That's the whole point. That's why it's free. So I think that, that, you know, we're starting, starting to see some of those more, you know, private platforms that would allow you to do either synchronous or asynchronous interactions with individuals or groups. And I, you know, I really look forward to seeing more of those kinds of tools that will be useful for researchers. My last question, what's one piece of advice you would give a researcher doing research online? Well, we, we always say with research design to start with your problem and then figure out your methods from there. And I th- think that is certainly even more true with online research. In other words, you know, to start with saying, oh, well, I'm going to do online interviews. And you go like, well, why? Why? Or I'm going to use a big qual approach. Why? Why are you going to do that? How does that best address the problem you're trying to study? So start with the problem, then look at the other parts of the question. But to, you know, as you're thinking about the time frame for your design process, to 
make sure that you have enough time to think through the implications of each decision and how each part of the study influences the other. So that's that, you know, take that holistic approach, which I think also then ties in with the ability to be a good ethical researcher. Because, you know, if you've looked at how each of these pieces fits together and what the kind of repercussions of each decision on the other parts of the study, then you can go into it feeling confident that you, you know, are, are doing this in a, in a way that, that you can be proud of. Thank you, Jenna, for talking with us, and thanks to those tuning in. So listeners, if you enjoyed learning more about conducting qualitative research online, we'd appreciate your support by rating and subscribing to the NVivo podcast. This helps us to share these amazing narratives with the research community. So thanks, Janet. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us for Between the Data. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more about NVivo podcasts and community events, please visit go.invivobyqsr.com slash community or email me, Stacy Penna, at s.penna, P-E-N-N-A, at qsrinternational.com. <laughs>